Please turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll be reading the whole chapter, verses 1 through 12. Please give your full attention to God's word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed, to this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. A little over a week ago, after the U.S. military fired missiles into Syria in order to destroy chemical weapons facilities, our Vice President Mike Pence was quoted as saying about those countries that supported Syria and their dictator, he said this, Russia and Iran are on the wrong side of history. They're on the wrong side of history because of their support of this country. That phrase stuck out to me because I typically hear that from the political and social left against their opponents on the right. Here you had somebody who's seen as a champion of the right using it in in his own context, his own setting. And that's why it stuck out to me. It was actually one of the favorite phrases of our former president, Barack Obama, that those that he was criticizing, those who were on the other side of the political spectrum or of any particular issue from him, those people were on the wrong side of history. And I've always been fascinated, ever since that phrase became popular, I've been fascinated by it. Because it, it says a lot to us, how they use that phrase against their opponents tells you a lot about their values, their philosophy, certainly their political views, but really even their view of history and their view of the future. Think about it. When you say that somebody is on the wrong side of history, you're making 
a statement about values and about the future. First of all, about values, you're saying there is a right and a wrong. That in and of itself is a disputable thing these days, but there is a right and wrong. That your people, your party, your side of the issue is on the right side of history, and those who disagree with you are on the wrong side of history. So it says a lot about values. It says that there is a trajectory to morality in the present, that it's headed a certain direction, and you need to figure out what that direction is so you get on the right side of it. But it also says a lot about the future. Matter of fact, it's a pretty audacious prediction of the future, because what you're saying is, my side is going to win. And so, in other words, you're going to say, people in the future are going to look at you, my opponent, and say, you were wrong in light of how the future has played out. And that's an amazing thing to say, amazingly bold thing to say about the future. It makes me think of what Martin Luther King once said. He said that the universe, the history of the universe, bends towards justice. The history of the universe bends towards justice. And if that's true, and in a sense, in which we'll see in a moment, I certainly believe it's true. If it's true, then it's very important that we define what justice is. And in order to define what justice is, we better determine who has the right to determine what justice is. Who gets the right to define it? We're here because we're Christians. We're here because we believe that this book, the Bible, is the word of God. And therefore, we believe that Scripture gives us God's will. Scripture spells out for us God's law, which is based upon God's will. And therefore, Scripture says that justice is defined by God, and it's defined in his word, and God's law is the very definition of what justice is. And therefore, history is bending towards justice, History is headed for justice. Matter of fact, history is on a collision course with judgment. That's what the scriptures teach. And we do need to be sure that we're on the right side of history. We're looking at 2 Thessalonians. And it's very similar to 1 Thessalonians. You're going to, matter of fact, you're going to hear a lot of familiar themes as we work through 2 Thessalonians. He touches on the same topics he, he dealt with in 1 Thessalonians, which we just finished. And one of the most prominent topics of 1 Thessalonians, and now again in 2 Thessalonians, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And as I said a few weeks ago, we are not focused enough in this day, comfortable, prosperous day and age, we are not focused enough on the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is something that we need to correct in our doctrine so that it changes our lives, because that's what good biblical doctrine does. And that's what Paul is doing here, is he is speaking to a young, thriving, and yet suffering church. And his goal here in chapter 1 is to give these new Christians that are suffering for their faith how to view that suffering in light of future justice, of the judgment that is coming. Paul begins this letter the same way that he began his first letter. Matter of fact, the language is extremely similar to 1 Thessalonians 1. 
And he begins, interestingly, again, by thanking God for the growth in faith and the growth in love that he sees, that he's hearing about, that's going on in this new, vibrant church in Thessalonica. But what's interesting to me here is he doesn't congratulate these new believers, saying you're doing such a great job growing in your faith and growing in your love for one another. He thanks God for it. Because it's God's work in them, and he acknowledges that from the very beginning. He says he boasts about them to other churches, which is interesting. He goes to other churches that he's planting or he's, he's encouraging, and he tells stories about how God is working in the church in Thessalonica to encourage those saints. Sometimes in our worship services, we have an evidences of grace. We have somebody stand up and give a testimony. And they're not boasting, when they stand up to give a testimony what God's doing in their life, they're not boasting in themselves. They're not saying what a great person I am for this good thing that's happened in my life. They're not boasting in this church or the pastors or the elders or anybody. They're boasting in the Lord. And that's what Paul's doing here. I boast in the Lord when I speak to other churches about what he is doing in you, about how you're growing in your faith and your love for one another. But we'll see as he goes on that it's not just that they're growing in their faith and in their love, but they're doing it while they're suffering. Not just while they're suffering afflictions, he says, but also persecutions. And if you remember back a few months ago, before we started our study in 1 Thessalonians, we went to Acts chapter 17 because that's where the account is of the planting of the church in Thessalonica. And you remember in Acts 17 that from the very beginning, when Paul went there to preach the gospel, from the very beginning, that new church, the believers who believed the gospel that Paul preached, they immediately were being persecuted by both the, the Jewish leadership and the Jews in that city, as well as the city officials. To the point where Paul was driven out of the city very shortly after he arrived there. He was not able to stay and build the foundation there like he wanted to. He was driven out by the persecution. And as we've said before, he was very concerned about this new church, how it was doing in the midst of that kind of persecution on multiple fronts. And so to strengthen them and help them stand up and stand firm in the midst of suffering and persecution, he gives them some truths to hang on to, some perspective on both the present and the future that will enable them to continue to grow in faith and continue to grow in love as they look to the future. The first thing that he wants to talk to them about, the first thing he wants to give to them is a faith perspective on what Christ is doing in the present. What is he doing in the midst of their suffering? Christ is not absent from their suffering. He's in the midst of their suffering, but what is he doing? And that's what he alludes to in verse 5. Paul says, there is evidence of this, is evidence. Now I want you to think for a minute, what's the this he's referring to? This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What's he just referred to? He just referred to their suffering, their afflictions, their persecutions. He's saying the persecutions, the suffering that you're doing for your faith is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, he's saying you're suffering, young believers, your suffering for your faith is proof that God is just. And you hear that and you say, huh? I mean, he may say amen, but you may say, huh? What do you mean? <laughs> Sorry, Ron. Ron's, Ron's a seasoned saint. He knows the answer. He knows where we're headed with this. 
But, you know, on the surface you think, what do you mean my suffering is a sign that God is just? You know, the, the world looks at the church suffering. The, the world looks at Christians in the midst of their suffering and persecution. And the world says, look, you guys are wrong. You're on the wrong side of history. You're losing. You're weak. You're suffering. You need to get on the right side of history. Where is your God now? And we as Christians wrestle with it, don't we? Even strong Christians like Ron wrestles with it, I'm sure. When you see the church suffering, when you see Christians suffering, when you see people dying because of their faith in Christ, you say, why doesn't the Lord do something? If God exists and God is just and God loves his people, why does he sit by silently while this goes on? Or as so many saints say it in the pages of scripture, how long, O Lord? How long will you forget us? How long will you sit by silently while your people suffer? Let me remind you of the prophet Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk wrestled. That was the whole point of, that, of his prophecy being in scripture. is to give us words to express this dilemma of our faith. Let me read to you how this book begins. Habakkuk prays to the Lord and he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. How long, O oh Lord? What are you doing in the present, Lord? Even, there's even a picture of the martyrs, those who died for their faith. There's a picture of their souls in heaven in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, where they cry out to God, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're crying out for justice. They're crying out for judgment to come. But Paul says here that we suffer, as he goes on to say, that we may be considered worthy. And maybe a better translation is that we may be shown to be worthy of the kingdom of God. That's the purpose of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I emphasize the word Lord. He's Lord over our suffering. He's Lord over our afflictions. He's Lord over persecutions. His purpose is that our faith might be shown to be real, to be genuine. That we may be shown worthy of the kingdom of God. Suffering, and especially suffering because of our faith, confirms that our faith is real, it grows our faith, and it shows our faith to a doubting world. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is testing, he's trying, he's strengthening, he's proving the genuineness of your faith by the suffering that you go through, especially the suffering because of your faith. 
the hardship you bring into your life because Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Choosing faithfulness and obedience to Christ when it leads to suffering shows the world that Jesus Christ is more valuable to us than anything in the world. And that's a powerful testimony to a world that lives for its very temporary and passing pleasures and comforts. Christ is more valuable to us than anything you can take away from us in this world. Remember the example of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 when they were imprisoned by the Jewish Sanhedrin and they were beaten because of their faith in Christ and they were forbidden to preach the gospel. It says there that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy that they, through their suffering, through their persecution, had shown to be worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. That's the view of our current suffering. That's what Christ is doing. You may think that the purpose of your life is to get a good job, to get a good spouse, to build a nice house, to get a nice car, to have a successful career, to live in comfort and prosperity. You may think that's what your life is about, but if you belong to Lord Jesus Christ, then the purpose of your life is twofold. It's to grow in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for one another. And it's to bear testimony to the world about how great and glorious Jesus Christ is. That's what your life is about. And I'm here to tell you that Christ uses suffering more consistently, more often, to bring about those two good ends than anything else in your life. But then Paul looks to the future because all this is meaningless without a perspective of what's going to happen in the future. So he gives a faith perspective on what Christ is coming to do when he returns in the future. But before I look there to what Paul says, let me take you back to show you that this is the consistent message of Scripture from beginning to end. Let me take you back to Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, if you know that psalm, the psalmist, as he writes it, is wrestling with the same thing that the prophet Habakkuk was wrestling with. That the rich people are wicked and the wicked people are rich. The comfortable people are the wicked. The people who have what they need and want in life are the wicked and the righteous are suffering. And it's not just, it's not right. And God is sitting by silently and letting it happen. So the, the writer of Psalm 73 is, is wrestling with the exact same issue. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 8. They, speaking of the wicked, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues stretch through the earth. Let me skip down to verse 11. And they say, how can God know? Where is God in all of this? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. His faith was being tested, his faith is faltering, and he's crying out, how long, O Lord, until justice comes? But you notice in the psalm where he gets the change in perspective. It's when he goes to church, or the Old Testament version of the church, which was going to the temple. He goes to the church, 
And there he says he sees their end. Let me read that part to you. That's in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He heard about the end of the road for the wicked. He goes on in verse 18. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. But then the hope of the gospel comes in in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. You see how it was an eschatological view of the end. A view of the end times teaching of scripture that gave him hope and comfort and strengthened his face when he was doubting the justice of God. And so, let's go back to first, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul also points the Thessalonian Christians to the end, to what is coming in the future, to give them greater faith to endure. He says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. Paul says justice is coming. Judgment will come, and all that is wrong will be made right in this world. Wickedness will be repaid, given what it is due, and those who have faith will receive relief, rest, deliverance, fullness of salvation. When? When is this going to happen? Where is this justice going to come from? What's it going to look like? That's where he goes on to say, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to be revealed, Paul says. The word in the original Greek is the word apocalyptus. It's the word we get apocalyptic from. He is going to be revealed. There's going to be a great revelation. Something that is now hidden is going to be revealed. He certainly is now hidden. We do not see Jesus Christ in all of his glory and power and authority. We only see that by faith. We can't see it with our physical eyes. We don't see justice right now. Matter of fact, what we see, all we seem to see is injustice. But on that day, justice will be revealed. Jesus will be revealed, and all that is wrong will be punished, and all that is right will be made, all that is right will be, will be accepted into his eternal kingdom. It mentions there the angelic army, a mighty army of angels and fire. Now, I know that throughout Scripture, fire is a symbol of God's holiness, of God's presence. Our God is a consuming fire. It speaks of his purity of his hatred of wickedness and evil. But I don't think it's metaphorical here. I don't think it's just an image or a symbol. I think it's literal. That there will be fire when Christ comes again. It'll be a historical reality. Because Peter describes it in historical terms in 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen to how he describes the coming of Christ there. I'll start with verse 7. 
the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Everything that offends our holy God will be destroyed. And God is going to renew the heavens and the earth. But only after he has put away sin and sinners once and for all. Those that are unrepentant in their wickedness. And every effect of sin in this fallen world will be done away with. Paul elsewhere says the wages of sin is death. But he goes into a little more detail here. He puts it this way in verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Eternal destruction is a terrifying phrase. There's no hope of annihilation. There's no hope of going out of existence. I think a lot of unbelievers think, well, if I can live it up here and then just go out of existence, that's okay with me. I can live with that. But that's not what the Bible says happens for the wicked, the unrepentant after they die. They experience eternal destruction. Those who believe in Christ receive eternal life and those who reject Christ and the gospel experience eternal destruction. Paul describes it as being away from the presence of the Lord. And that's probably the most vivid description that we need. Because if you're away from the presence of the Lord, you're not only away from his glorious presence, but you're away from everything that is good. All you're left with is darkness, emptiness for eternity. It's a place that our Lord Jesus Christ called a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place that he called outer darkness. And that's what every sin deserves. And all sin must be repaid. Justice must be served. Now this picture of Jesus Christ coming as judge, coming in power, coming to inflict vengeance, that phrase kind of catches in our throat, doesn't it? Jesus Christ is coming to inflict vengeance. It's not very popular. That's because the world has a hard time dealing with the concept of the wrath of God against sin. They do not accept the picture of God we have in Scripture as one who is holy, 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 who cannot even look upon sin, who hates sin with a holy hatred. But Psalm 11, or Psalm, Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge. And a God who feels indignation every day. God is angry every day while sin still exists in his universe. He is angry. I've been reading through the Bible. I do that uh, kind of on a rotating basis. And obviously not reading through it in a year because I'm, I'm just uh, at this point, I'm, I'm for the last four months I've been reading the Old Testament prophets starting with the major prophets and now I'm just wrapping up with the minor prophets 
And that's hard to do for those of you that have done it. If you've just tried to read straight through, I know some Bible reading plans kind of mix it up with other portions of Scripture, and the reason they do that is because it's really hard to just read from the beginning of the prophets through the end of the prophets in the Old Testament. Not because it's hard to understand, it's actually fairly easy to understand. It's because the message is so heavy, difficult to cope with. Let me give you a summary, having spent several months every day reading in the Old Testament prophets. Let me give you a summary of the message, and I give it to you in three sentences. Here's what all the Old Testament prophets have to say. Number one, God is angry at the sins of the nations and judgment is coming against the nations. Two, God is more angry at the sins of his people because they should know better. Because they've received the law. They've received the blessings of the covenant. And still, They've sinned the same sins. So God is more angry at his own people than he is at the nations. And then the third thing that we learn from the Old Testament prophets is that God is merciful. And God will show mercy upon a faithful remnant, a remnant of his people and even from the nations that will put their faith in his promises and trust in him to provide salvation. That's what the Old Testament prophets teach. It is a great corrective. I, if you haven't read through the Old Testament prophets, I strongly encourage you to do it. It's a corrective to the spirit of this age that seeks to lessen our idea of what sin is and God's attitude towards sin. We would not want to live in a world or a universe without righteous indignation. We would not want to live in a world that's indifferent to sin and wickedness. We would not want to live in a world without a judge or justice. And we wrestle with that concept of vengeance, don't we? When we hear vengeance, we equate that with, with, with evil, with wickedness. But I know in the heart of hearts, for all of us, not just here in this room, but out there even in the culture, we know that's not right. That There's something good there, something we need. You know how I know that? Because probably the biggest movie ever to come out from Hollywood is coming out this week. What's it called? The Avengers. Infinity War. The most popular, fictitious characters in our culture are Avengers. What that says to us is that we long for somebody to come and avenge us. We long for justice. We're tired of this fallen world. We're tired of wickedness prospering and righteous people suffering. We want Avengers. But Scripture says there's only one. And he is coming. And when he comes, he's bringing judgment and justice. And we will praise him for it. Those of us who look to faith in him anyway. History is moving towards justice. Judgment day is coming and everything that has been wrong and is wrong in this world will be made right by the righteous Savior, Jesus Christ. In the meantime, we need during this period, I'm going to be talking in a second about what, the Lord, what Paul wants us to think about in the meantime, between here and there. One of those things is we need to 
continually, daily be adjusting our view of sin. Because our own nature causes us to minimize sin. The culture around us seeks to confuse us about sin and minimize our view of sin. That's why we need to be in the scriptures every day so that we can, as much as possible, learn to hate sin the way that the Lord hates sin. To view sin the same way he does. To stop taking the everyday sins that we all commit so lightly. God doesn't take our sins lightly. We tend to, you know, our culture certainly tends to only hate the really bad sins. We're not going to, it's not controversial to go out into the culture and talk about the sin of child abuse. Or the sin of genocide. Or the sin of murder. Or the sin of rape. That's not controversial. The world hates those sins to a certain degree. But we, like the culture, we believe what the culture tells us, that our sins of gossip and pride and laziness are somehow just something that annoy God. Kind of an inconvenience to him. But he hates those sins. And then there's the other issue of how we... We have this tunnel vision about sin. We have our own tribes and what sins that we care about. And, 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 and we care more about what the culture tells us, what are important sins and unimportant sins, than what the scriptures tell us. And I hate the fact that the church these days is getting sucked into the world's debate. You know, everybody in the church seems to want to line up according to what the world standards are of right or left. And so, yes, if you're on the right, it is... God is angry. God is angry at the sin of abortion. God is angry at the sin of unrepentant sexual sin. Anything outside of a monogamous relationship between a husband and wife and a covenant for a lifetime, anything outside of that makes God angry. How sin is, is abused and distorted and destroyed outside of the boundaries that he set for it. That makes him angry. People on the right are correct about that. False teaching. God is angry. I still say that the deepest places in the pits of hell are reserved for false teachers. Those who would seek to lead people astray from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. God is angry at false teachers and false teaching. But to those on the right, I say God's more angry than you are. God is more offended than you are by those things. But let me speak to you on the left. Yes, God is angry at corporate greed. God is angry at racism. God is angry at the oppression of the poor. God is angry at the abuse of the environment. He's more angry than you are. All of it, he hates. And we hate it far less than he does. But you know what unites us? Whether because of our upbringing, our family, our social setting, whatever it is that tends to put us on the right or left, you know what unites us? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God is merciful to any of those sinners if they'll only put their faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Any of them. And that's where we find our unity. The return of Jesus Christ is going to be 
the second greatest display of the justice and judgment of God alongside of the mercy of God in history. The second greatest. You know what the first greatest was? The cross. Because at the cross is where you see the judgment of God poured out in horrific ways upon our Lord Jesus Christ. He bore the separation from God and all that is good for all eternity as he hung there on the cross in our place. That's what hell looks like when Christ cries out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what hell looks like. That's what eternal destruction looks like. Separation from God in all that is good. And he endured it for sinners who put their faith in him. He did that in our place, and that's where the mercy of God comes from. You see, justice has been served at the cross for those who have faith in Christ. For the rest, justice will be served in the future. Christ came the first time to bring justice upon our sin, to pay for our sins. He will come again to judge the rest of the sins. But at the end, when it's all over, all will be repaid. Justice will be completely, perfectly, fully served. And on that day, when people are crying out, those who have rejected Christ, they've rejected the truth, they've rejected the gospel, when they're crying out for the rocks to fall upon them, to hide them from the presence of the coming of Christ, we're going to be praising him because justice finally will be served. All that is wrong will be made right. And so Paul says in the last part, the last two verses, verses 11 and 12, what do we do until then? How do we endure the suffering? How do we endure the persecution? How do we not get bitter and angry and hardened by the injustice that's around us? Well, verses 11 and 12 tell us. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays, again, it's not our work, we can't produce it in ourselves, but he prays that God will continue the good work that he began in them. The transformation from within. Notice he talks about their resolve, their, their will, their commitment, their desire to do what is right, as well as their good works. And that's the awesome sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, is that he changes your heart so that your life changes. He transforms your will so that you begin to live according to true justice, which is defined by the law, by the word of God. And so as one commentator said, our calling between now and when Christ comes again is to narrow the gap between what we are and what we will be by his grace. We are called to endure afflictions. We are to share in the sufferings of Christ. The New Testament makes that clear to us. But the, the gospel also shows us how to avoid the sin of bitterness and discouragement in the midst of it. Let me read to you, I think, an important passage to lay alongside of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's found in Romans chapter 12. 
Because there Paul applies it directly to how you are to endure the suffering that God calls you to endure. And you will suffer. He says, repay no one evil for evil. This is beginning in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, all sin will be punished at one of two places and one of two times in history. All sin will either have been punished at the cross or when Christ comes again. So there will never, at the end, when it's all said and done, there will be no injustice. And so we can patiently endure when we are persecuted, when we are violated, when we are, our belongings are taken from us, when our very life is taken from us, we can endure it knowing that either God will pardon that persecutor because Christ paid for that sin on the cross and paid for it in full, or that person will pay themselves, but justice will be served. You see, we're the only ones who know that. That when it's all said and done, justice will be served. We don't need to be bitter. We don't need to hold on to, to uh, anger and a grudge. God is using our suffering for our good and for his kingdom. And that suffering will be handled in a just way. We know that by faith. And so listen to what Peter says. I read earlier from 2 Peter chapter 3 where he talks about the present heavens and earth being destroyed by fire. Listen to what he says immediately after that passage that I read, talking about how then we should live. Listen to this, verse 11, 2 Peter 3. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're going to live in a universe that is characterized by nothing but righteousness and holiness and goodness and purity. So why not be living for that now, seeking that now, striving for it now, you see, your view of the future affects how you live in the present. Let me also read to you just a couple pages over from 1 John chapter 3. Listen to what, what John says there. He says, Beloved, this is verse 2, chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who, who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see how your view of the end affects the way you live today. That's why you need to get that in your life every day. Get that focus. Get that focal point. You're not living for the next moment. You're not living for this afternoon. You're not living for tomorrow. You're not living for 10 years from now. You're living for that day when Christ comes to make all things right and good for all eternity. And that will affect the way you live. History is driven by the plan of salvation put in place by God himself. That's the agenda of history, is the plan of salvation, which is the work of Christ in his first coming and then in his second coming. 
And all of history is moving towards judgment day. Which side of history are you on this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't have to look to Washington or Hollywood or even just to popular opinion to find out what the trajectory of history is, what the trajectory of morality is. Lord, we have your word. You have told us. You not only have seen the future, but you control the future. You have planned the future. And all things are working together for our good and for the glory of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we continue to set our focus on the coming of Christ and the fullness of our salvation that is promised in him, Lord, may our hearts, our resolve, our will, our work come more and more into conformity to your will, to your law, to what is truly holy and just. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.